out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the guitarist James Smith, who is with the Nightingales. So we're going to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. The Nightingales, all the way from Birmingham, have got a new album out that has just been released. This is going to be, or has been titled, The Last Laugh which is on Tiny Global Productions, which is a brilliant record label, so do check out all their back catalogue and new releases. So, um, yes, with that in mind, um, this is the interview with James. So after several minutes of casual but interesting chat that gets edited out, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. James, we're waiting. Tell us more. Tell us now. Um, well, I guess I think my, my dad was always in bands in the... Uh... In the all from the fifties through seventies, so he was in bands with Bev Bevan um, from ELO. And, oh my god! Uh, uh, yeah, in a, an old rock and roll band called Rock and Ronnie and the Renegades. Um, and then he went through the different phases. So the fifties was Rock and Ronnie and the Renegades. The sixties was the Little People, i.e., the Small Faces kind of rip off. <laughs> and then in the seventies, he was Houston Treadmill, which was his kind of country rock outfit. My God! So, he was, so we we had quite a sort of musical background. We'd have people coming around like Raymond Froggis, um, Colin Scott, people like that. Right, my God! You you out of all the people I've ever interviewed, you must have got the most musical background of anybody. Yeah, I think so. And like, yeah, Jasper Carrot and obviously Bev Bev and that kind of crowd as well. So my first actual gig that I was taken to was age seven. Was um, the Electric Light Orchestra. Blimey. On That's... the out of the blue tour and they uh, they came out of a UFO. Jeezy crazy. <laughs> that was amazing because I was talking to someone last night who was a bit obsessed with ELO. Now I can't remember who that was, but they, we were talking about the, the important... God, I'm going to take... Who did I speak to last night? <laughs> I do think I'm losing my memory actually a bit because I keep thinking, who did I... Oh, I think it was Tim from Prolapse was talking about ELO, the yeah. importance of ELO. Yellow, which you wouldn't have <laughs> and also Miles Hunt from the Wonder Stuff. He was um his uncle was in ELO as well. Oh wow, yeah. He I was the vi- one of the uh, one of the cello players was called Hunt. Oh, it could have been the cello player. So yes, there was a connection there. He gave yeah. him some worldly advice. He said, Look, when you sort of write your lyrics, put more spaces in because you're gonna wreck your voice if you don't sort of give yourself some more breaks. <laughs> so he had to sort of slightly change his writing style. So um there you go. Wise people. So yeah, so obviously your musical path was a bit different than most people's who said, No, my parents never liked music. They had a few records, Jim Reeves, Elvis Presley, but you were there, right, right there. Yeah, yeah. The the guitar was kind of in the house and you were just strumming it already. Well, my dad was a lead singer, actually, um, so I did fancy being a singer. He was a kind of a gold lame suit, kind of super quiff, kind of Cliff Richard type character that would slide across pianos, and uh, um, that's what I fancied doing. But then I did, yeah, I got into the guitar sort of 13, 14. Right. Um, I can't remember exactly why I got into the guitar. Um, but then obviously get as yeah, the C eighty six thing was probably my sort of first indie awakening would have been kind of half man, half biscuit and uh, the primitives and that kind of thing. So I was born in nineteen seventy. Right. So you were but there sort of fifteen, sixteen, it would have been John Peel, 
I'm sure you've heard a lot of people say that. It's all John Peel, yes, this is this is all very true. So obviously, the early '80s, you were still at school, sort of just going through your teen yeah. period. Yeah. So when was when did you start thinking like music is more of a more than just a hobby, but actually as a as a sort of full time thing? Um, I think I started my first band at school, sort of age 15, 16, um, and I've played constantly ever since then. Um, it was that it was that indie sort of John Peel thing of uh, it wasn't really a career path, but it was just a way to be creative, really. Yes. Um, so I've always been in bands from from age sixteen onwards. So whereabouts were you? Where where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in a place called Warstock, which is um, uh, it's like a suburb of Birmingham. Um, so a lot of people from Birmingham will say most of the scene in Birmingham is on the 50 bus route. Right. Warstock is where you end up if you fall asleep on the 50 and get right to the terminus at the end. You don't really want to be there. <laughs> 10, 15 minutes up the road, you've got King's Heath and Mosley and, and there's bands playing in those places. Yes. So when I was 16, 17, I'd go up to those places and there'd be gigs on. Blimey, this is very exciting because I come from East yeah. Anglia, so we didn't really have much of a musical scene. I mean, there were a few bands, you know, the Farmers Boys, the Hicks and Serious Drinking, oh, but yeah. we didn't we didn't really have that kind of. Mostly bands come to play to Norwich, but they come and play in Norwich, but they don't sort of. There isn't that kind of wow scene. Cherry Red Records are never going to put out a compilation of, you know, Birmingham, uh, <laughs> Norfolk, Norfolk bands, Norwich bands. Actually, you know, I don't think sure. they they would struggle to. <laughs> that first Hickson single's great. Yes, but I don't. Uh, yeah, you'd you'd have problems sort of filling out the rest of the collection, wouldn't you? Really, <laughs> you know, this is it's not like Manchester. They've got one which has got I think seven CDs. Liverpool got a five CD box set, and Sheffield again, you know, is like yeah. five CDs. So we didn't have that kind of musical world really. And also, Birmingham's got so many bands. You know, did you were you sort of aware of that kind of whole world of? We've got a fuzz box and we're going to use it and Terry and Jerry and people like that. Yeah, it's weird. My mom, my mom was a hairdresser in King's Heath and she used to do uh, fuzz boxes, mom's hair. So I remember getting the, I remember seeing the fuzz box video on the chart show, and then asking my mom to get a signed photograph. So I was probably fifteen, sixteen then. My God, and I went to see them at the Odeon. Probably I sneaked in at age sixteen ish. Yes. So I saw them quite early on. So that was sort of, I can't remember if the Nightingales played, but it would have been definitely Fuzzbox. Well, by then, I, I do remember getting the album uh, Boston, Steve Austin, and being very mesmerised yeah. by the by the yeah. delight of, I think there was just a bit of an excited, excitable time, really, for, for anybody who was into music. Because, you know, because I suppose I put indie rock down between the years of, you know, the glory years of 83 to 87, which are the years of the Smiths, let's face it. And there was just a lot of bands that came out at that time and um, quite a scene before, you know, and then a bit later we had the world of ecstasy and then things changed again. And then, you know. It was, yeah. Yeah, it was a weird thing with me. I sort of went from that kind of fuzzbox thing and primitives um, straight into a more kind of noisier thing with kind of Loop and Spaceman 3. And then that was kind of a leap into another world of kind of American grunge. Right. You so did I ended it. up going in that kind of noisy guitar direction, really. Yes. And but before that, what was your sort of first gig? Was it the first box or did you have a one before then? That's to say, oh. I mean, uh, ELO was my first age seven. That was, But the, the first one that I went to under my own steam would have been uh, Terry and Jerry, funnily oh. enough. 
God, that is brilliant. Reservation yeah. is a great single, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. First time I ever saw kind of chicken dancing. <laughs> I think, and then one, and then a few years ago, I thought, oh, you know, I'd sort of forgot about them a bit. And then I saw they were supporting status quo. And it's like, random. <laughs> is that a dream? But I didn't yeah, on the acoustic tour, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> right. So that was great, actually, they did it. So then, what was the first record you bought? Um, first one with my own money would have been probably Stray Cat Strut. I'm going to say classic that because my dad was a rock and roller. He used to sort of send me to school with Elvis badges on, and um, there was that rock and roll revival sort of early '80s that I got into. Yes, I know that was that was kind of pole cats, the stray cats, the <laughs> yeah. Because just ones. before that, there was a there was an outfit that was in New York called the Rock Cats, Levi and the Rock Cats, who were from sort of Essex, I believe, the UK. And then this guy Lee Black Childers sort of really oh, yeah. took a shine to the bass player Smutty Smith and sort of took them over to New York, where he got some amazing photographs of Smutty because he he was really good looking. He but he had some tattoos. And then Robert Maplethorpe took these photographs and they created this band who became kind of famous, but they never kind of managed to commit to the to a good record. But then you got all those bands from New York, including the Stray Cats and the Cramps eventually, who sort yeah, of made it yeah. and and the Rock Cats didn't. But um oh, I, I think, never heard of them. The Rock oh, Cats no. have to check them out. Yes, there's a couple of um Levi and the the Rock Cats. Do check it out. There's a there's one single they had with um they try to have a bit of a producer to sort of craft the the record, but it's not like Stray Cats. They just <laughs> They just had it, didn't they, really? Oh, yeah, that point. I mean, they had the look as well, didn't they? The they had the look. Big Jim Slim, Slim Jim. But yes, so then did you leave school at 16? Um, 18, yeah, I should have left at 16, but yeah, I carried on to 18. Did you A-levels? Did my A-levels, yeah. But um, by then, I was, yeah, music was kind of taking over. Yes. So then how did your, how did your musical journey then progress throughout the, the late um, 80s and early 90s? Um, so I started a, a, a sixth form band um, and we were kind of sort of two chord stooges kind of thing. But we had um, we had an Asian lead singer and we used to sing kind of stooges songs in uh, in Hindi, which didn't go down too well. We used to get some some metal crowds that didn't like us. That was quite funny. Blimey. Um, and then uh, after that, I moved on to, um, I moved into sort of Kings Heath Mosley area. And then I joined a band called um, Lord Montashian, sort of in the in the mid 90s. And they, we did a Peel session. Um, that was during the time of, of Birmingham, had all of those, uh, it, was called, it was called the We Brought Our Friends scene, I guess. It would have like... Um, Broadcast, Plone, Pram, um, obviously Lord Montashian, Avro Car, all of those kind of bands. Um, yeah, and we did one album and a couple of singles on Kooky and Pickled Egg. Right. Blimey. And we did a session at Maidervale. God, you, did you get to see or meet Dale Griffith? Yes, yeah, he did our session, actually. And was he grumpy? He was okay. He wasn't too bad. Yeah, <laughs> Most people thought mm, he didn't like us. He didn't, <laughs> <laughs> he didn't mind us because we didn't have any guitars. It was a very kind of anti-rock by then. So I was playing bass for Lord Montashian, actually. We had keyboards, bass, trumpet and drums. Blimey, haven't God. So the whole Birmingham scene around that time was very anti-rock and very kind of, you know, let's not be, let's not have traditional instruments. Yeah. 
very different to prolapse. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Although they did have you... connections to them because they were on pickled egg as well. Pickled egg, God, what? pickled egg records, yeah. So um, we used to go to Leicester quite a bit. Yes, and did you get to tour around the country at this stage? We did, yeah. Um, I think we played kind of Leeds and Oxford, um, London at the garage, the small garage, a couple of times. Um, but yeah, we were kind of one album band, and then we split up, sort of early two thousands. Blimey. It had to happen, didn't it? Because most bands, you know, they have that five-year narrative, don't they? They get together, they do the John Peel, they get a single John Peel session. Yeah. One album, possibly two, and then that's all over. Was that kind of pretty much what was was the reason for splitting up? Because it was just it just ran out of steam. Um, yeah, kind of. It was, I think it was kind of, you know, personal clashes in the band, really, but um uh the band just wasn't getting on at that time. So uh I'm glad that we got to actually put the album out and, and get a peel session under the belt. But that was, even that was a push, to be fair. The characters in the band were um, kind of clashing. <laughs> <laughs> God, that's amazing. I think I'm always now amazed with those bands like, I don't know, even, I say even, but Simple Minds or you 2 or anybody who kind of just keeps it going because there must be so much tension oh, yeah. between between them. But also there must be a lot more at stake as well. So there must be that kind of the tension sometimes. I, I have loved watching the the Fleetwood Mac story, especially the one from the, I suppose, the second part or the third part of Fleetwood Mac with Stevie Nicks and Lindsay Buckingham. And you could imagine, you know, that moment where they've got the date, they're all going to get together, who's going to turn up, who's not going to turn up, you know, who's going to, you know, who's going to not say something, who's going to say something. It must just be horrendous thinking, oh my <laughs> God, so much is writing on this moment, you know. Have you seen the uh, the UB40 documentary? That's yes. Cool. It's quite a sad tale. Jesus, um... crazy. That is, that, <laughs> that pushes it. I know they're all kind of mad. Uh, not them, but just the whole, you know, just not being able to function at all on any level. Sometimes it's, it's quite a bizarre. So then as we go into the new millennium, what, what, the, what, what's your next musical moment? Um, I kind of, at that point, um, started the day job. Um, but then I started, uh, well, we'd had a bedroom band, which was quite weird. We were called the B-Men. And I think we were before White Stripes with this, but we had a colour scheme, which was black and yellow. Um, we were quite into the residence, so we had paper mache B-heads with right. with uh, sibs for eyes. Um, and we did a couple of singles in the early 2000s. And um, we used to play the Jug of Ale quite a lot. That was the main venue in Moseley where a lot of bands would play. Um, now, sadly, no longer there. But, um, yeah, I did the B-Men for a while, and then I started a band called Betty and the Id, which was uh, a more solid outfit, and that was... Um, we did a couple of albums, and we did quite a lot of gigging with that band. That was a more solid, traditional kind of four-piece band. Yes. And how do you cope with sort of having the... The day job as well as the band is it does it just become much more I yeah know. you need the release I think from the day job it's always been a thing that you need to have really I think just to just to have something to look forward to in the evenings you know after the nine to five yes absolutely um, I was also playing guitar in a band called the courtesy group who were um I guess they were quite close to nightingales in a way but quite sort of heavy post-punk um 
with a, a really extrovert lead singer called Al Hutchings, who's fantastic. He'd be in the audience after the first song, <laughs> um, kind of doing weird John Cooper Clark poetry between the tracks. My God. Um, worth checking out. They're still going. Are they? What are they called? Uh, the Courtesy Group. Really good. Right. My God, I will check. So, yeah, I was, I'd, I'd get involved in things like that. And then Al, Al was quite an active person, so he put gigs on as well. And he put on um, Damo Suzuki at the Hare and Hounds in Birmingham. Um, and this was probably 2005. And uh, we all improvised with with him. He was doing an endless tour at the time where, where people, he just gets a band together in each town and we just make something up for an hour and he sings over the top. And apparently Robert Lloyd was, uh, Rob was at that gig and he, uh, wrote me down in his little book as a potential future guitarist. As somebody to keep an eye out on. Yeah, that was 15 years before I joined the band. Right. Thank God he didn't lose the book. Yes. So then what's what's your next kind of musical adventure? Um, Well, then after that, it was was basically into the Nightingales then in in 2015. Um, So that, yeah. Betty and the Id kind of ran out of steam. Um, I started doing a weird sort of solo project called Rave Org, which was quite a noisy. It was basically an old drum machine, uh, keyboard, drones and guitar noise. Um, And that was kind of a solo thing. Um, And then after that, I got offered to play with the Nightingales, sort of 2015. My God, this is fantastic! Did you? Because was what was the first album? It wasn't Mind Over Matter, was it? Your first album? I toured. I toured that album, so I joined in sort of late 2014, um, and uh, rehearsed for probably three or four months. Because to be honest, when I first joined the band, it was um, I thought it might be a, a step too far for me. Really, a step up. Um, they had the the sets where there was no gaps between songs and all of that takes time to get into your system. It's kind of muscle memory to learn. Right. Play like that. So I, luckily I had a good a good three months to get that together. And then we toured the Mind Over Matter album sort of March 2015. And my first tour was 21 gigs in 22 days. My God, did that nearly kill you? It was a yeah, baptism of fire, yeah, definitely. <laughs> and what was it like sort of stepping into a band with such kind of history? Uh, it was very daunting, to be honest, because obviously you've got Fliss. Fliss is a fantastic drummer. Rob's obviously, you know, been around for years and he's, he's just, you know, unbelievable, really. Um, and then you've got um, Andy from Germany who's... Um, you know, coming from the Faust studio. So, yeah, it was very daunting. <laughs> um, but as I say, luckily I had that three months just to, to drill the songs. So had you, you weren't on Tiny Global Productions by then, were you? That was the next album. I think the Mind Over Matter was on um, John Robb's label. Right. Which was Louder Than War. Yes, that's right. And so then- yeah, we joined was, Tiny Global after that. Because that's uh, John Henderson, isn't it, from Tiny Global? That's right, yeah. The, the, I mean, he's got such an amazing roster now. So when you went in to do the the sort of the, your first studio album with the band, what was that like? 
Um, yeah, it was great. Obviously, we I think we toured in the first year. We did the UK, we did West Coast, and we did Europe. So um, that's where we met John Henderson because he was living in Budapest at the time. Of course, yes. And, um, that's where we signed up with him. Um, but then we did we did a sort of mini album first, uh, which I don't I don't think that was on Tiny Global. Um, to remember what that was on now become not becoming and that was recorded uh in leamington spa with john rivers who was obviously famously produced swell maps and felt and um all those bands oh my god the famous john rivers yeah yeah what, yeah what was that like working with him very interesting character <laughs> he's um yeah he's gone totally the other way now he's not lo-fi at all he's really into plugins and um uh, and you know cutting edge technology so but obviously he's got lots of good stories about the swell maps and uh, Lawrence uh, Lawrence I did an interview with Lawrence <laughs> last week because he's got there's a new film out I don't know if you've seen it Lawrence of Belgravia yeah I saw it yeah yes <laughs> it's kind of really funny amazing character yes interesting chap actually so yes yeah, so then you're on time yes because john henderson's quite an amazing character as well isn't he because i did an interview with him and he told me he was once managing a, a bank robber which i went could we just could you explain what that means and then explain <laughs> about the bank robber this this famous bank robber something like that yeah is he a famous famous actor as well in a film well they made a film about it and um yes he was like he was like, how do you become a famous bank robber? Um, yeah, so it was like, and how do you manage someone like that? He said, yeah, it's quite an unusual. He used to have introduced um, Kurt to Courtney as well, but I don't know if that's true. Oh, God, that's amazing. There's a few people claiming that one. Yes. <laughs> that will be quite interesting. So, yeah, so when you, when you did your first album with the band, did you... What what did the songs come together organically as a band, or do do sort of it get to, does it get directed by Rob? Um, well, with the band, we were we had a lockup at that time um, in Wolverhampton, and we rehearsed sort of two days a week, every week, for a good probably the first few years of me being in the band. Um, and we have a, a guy called Mark who. Uh, does our merch and road manages us and he's got he's a professor and he's got a, a massive house in sort of run down raggedy house in Wolverhampton and we'd rehearse on the Thursday and then we'd all stay over together in the house you know cook a meal spend time together and then um rehearse again the next day so we were pretty pretty tight and drilled um, My God, that sounds like Captain Beefheart. Yeah, yeah, but weekly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did an interview with John French, the you know drumbo, wow. the, the drummer, and he said you know it was not good. It's not a good experience. He wouldn't recommend living living in a house with Captain doing you know track mask replica with anybody. They were living on a, a a cup of mung beans each, weren't they? For that. Yes, I think you know. I think he was emotionally damaged ever since, really. But that's art for you. So, what was it like with the band? Was the dynamic quite to get a it's lot easier? Great. Yeah, I mean, it was. Um, as I say, with my other bands that I've been in, it would be a, a once a week practice for a couple of hours. But this was way more sort of um, involved, and it was, you know, it wasn't just the practice. It was spending the time together, cooking a meal for each other, going to the pub together. 
you know, it was like a, almost like a family vibe. Yes. Does it feel more like you you sort of entered the Premiership after being in the fourth, to, the <laughs> second? Or, was oh, it yeah. like you had to sort of step up a bit? Definitely had to step up. Yeah. Um, that's as I say, those three months were vital to get to get to that level. Because um, obviously, Alan, the previous guitar player, was top notch. So um, yeah, but I think that that sort of two day a week practice and spending time together really bonds a band. Um, it's a bit weird with Andy being in Germany, so he'd just come over for tours and like a week before and a week after. Yes. Um, but yeah, we we we'd be pretty tight by the time he came over. Yeah, and what so was we're it... creating new songs as well in that time? And where did you record um, "Perish the Thought"? Was that in Germany? So that was in Germany. Yeah, so I'd done the ten-inch "Become Not Becoming" uh, at Woodbine Studios, Leamington, and then um, "Perish the Thought" was in uh, the Faust Studio with uh, with Andy Engineering. Oh my God! And uh, Joe from Faust. It's his studio, basically, the keyboard player from Faust. Amazing. Um, yeah, and he's a bit of a character as well. Because it's interesting, because I have to say, the um, with the band, I actually, I prefer your latter stuff to the early stuff, because I never thought the production sounded that great on some of the earlier Nightingale stuff. So it's quite, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Sort of, because I think as a band, you only like to play your latter, uh, latter work, don't you? Yeah, um, we well we do we we do chuck one one or two oldies in, but it's mainly from when the band reformed in two thousand and six onwards is is the majority of the set. But we would we may may chuck one one oldie in. Yes, I don't think but, people um, care, do they? They kind of just want to see the band. Yeah, I think some people really love those songs, and you know they're happy to have one or two in the set. But I think you know it is a it's an ongoing concern, and it's. Uh, you know, it's a vital band that sort of exists now. It's 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 not really a nostalgia act at all. No, you're not going to um, get on one of those weird circuits that are going no, around, are they? No, so no. what was the? So then you did a follow up two years later, Four Against Fate. Yeah, yeah, and I think I'd sort of found my feet by that point in the band, and um, uh, yeah, we had real fun making that making that album. We got out the. Uh, the Faust bits of metal in the studio, the uh, sheet metal and the uh, and the hammers, <laughs> a few bits of industrial action um, from the Faust studio. So yeah, we were a lot more comfortable by that phase. And was it? And did and had you worked all the songs quite a lot and demoed them before going and and sort of entering the studio? I think I think we had. I think that was less than the previous one. Um, I think we we hadn't really road tested those as much as Perish the Thought. We'd actually played those on on the road more. Yes. Um, so I think this was a bit more kind of developing it in the studio. Because I think it must have been, I don't know, I must have been the Perish the Thought. I think that was when you did the, the kind of art centres, because I think that's when you came to the Norwich and I came to see you playing live. Which yeah, quite... who was that with again? It was a, it was a, a great band. Um, I can't remember now. No, I can't remember. A female band. Uh, it will come back to me. Have you found, so so with the the film King Rocker? Has that meant that the band has had an extra sort of push with kind of you know attendances and and sort of interest? Yeah, definitely. It's um, I think it's pushed us up 
um, quite a bit on the definitely in certain areas. So um, I think we we toured extensively, obviously for four or five years. So we had already built up a bit more of an audience than we had. Um, but now I guess it's kind of doubled in in some areas. Kind of definitely London, Birmingham, um, Scotland. Um, it's yeah, it's gone from kind of two hundred to five hundred in those places now. Yes, the, the Norwich Arts Centre probably isn't quite big enough anymore, is it? <laughs> yeah, but I think at that gig there was probably hundred hundredish people, maybe hundred and fifty. Yes, it must be. And do you have? And is there an album coming out this autumn? That's right. Yeah, it's. Um, I did have a copy of it somewhere. Uh, I think I've got a copy as well. Yeah, the last laugh. The last laugh. That's right. John sent me a copy. That's it. Yeah. There you go. So how did you, how did you cope with? So how was lockdown for you and the and sort of your your creative process? Yeah, so obviously we we toured the last album, um, and then we had lots of plans. Obviously, King Rocker was supposed to be a cinema release, um, and then due to obviously the pandemic, um, it ended up being on Sky. So I think that kind of worked for us because it became a kind of event for for music fans. Um, it seemed to be a kind of a lot of people watching it or sort of gathering around the TV to watch it. Yes, I have to say, because it was always BBC Four on a Friday night was the go-to kind of yeah. music documentaries, but that sort of dried up yeah. and then and then Sky has suddenly yeah, sort of appeared. Yeah, luckily that's view as well now, so I think it worked really well. Yeah, um, and I know Stuart Lee was saying, because I did an interview with him when it came out with the director, and it was it was like, well... At least there's somebody's putting out sort of art-related films now, which yeah, it, yeah. And also, I'm surprised that it was free view. I didn't realise. I know. I was a bit sort of like, oh no, that's annoying. I'm going to have to pay you to see it, and it's like, no, it's free, so it's good. Yeah. And I would imagine it's kind of the reach has been a lot bigger be, because it was on Sky. I think it is, and and also because it it does get occasionally repeated now, so it, it's kind of stuck on the tv somewhere at some time you know, yes it's a little loop now that, and it will occasionally pop up and i think we sort of you know get more i think if people see it they do enjoy even if you don't like the music you'll enjoy the story of the band well actually i I, I do love watching rock documentaries even if they're on bands i remember i was fascinated there was one on chicago this american band and it was you know i thought i'm really not interested in this band but then it was just like Again, the story was so compelling and it was like such a bizarre outfit. I thought, God, that's brilliant. I still hate the music, but it was good. But actually, King Rocker it just has such a charm to it with Stuart's kind of bringing it along with, with Rob and hearing the kind of the story. Because we didn't know that much about some of the, the, I suppose, the horse, the betting, as well as the filmmaking. So it did sort that's of... Right. Um, so yes, going back to lockdown. So what was yes. it like then for your two years in in a sort of in a creative industry that suddenly has to sort of come to a halt? Um, yeah, obviously it was very tricky. Um, uh, we couldn't get together to rehearse or anything like that. So we, I think most bands probably did this. We created a little Dropbox. We've got instruments at home, and we just kind of ticked along, dropping ideas into the Dropbox as and when. Um, so we had a lot of ideas by the time 
we were getting towards the end where we could actually meet up. Um, we had a lot of ideas. As a, as a group in a room, it was more um, obviously using technology a little bit. Um, Fliss came into her own actually as a songwriter. So right. she really stepped up to the plate. Um, usually on our albums, one one member will step up. And on this one, I think it's Fliss on the new album. And she's found the brass button on Garage Band. So a, I'll give you a hint there. There's a little bit of brass on the album. <laughs> <laughs> and, what, and, did you, and have you changed kind of as a musician being in the band? I mean, have you started sort of thinking, can I want to contribute more? Definitely, yeah. I mean, um, I've always I've always written in my previous bands, so for me, it's just a constant thing. I just I just get ideas in my head, put them on my phone, and then uh, do a rough demo and drop them in the Dropbox. And some of them get used, some of them don't. But it's um, it's just keeping that flow. I think is the important thing. Just yes. Did did having a project keep 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 the sort of keep you mentally sane? Definitely, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, and it yeah it was great for obviously it was great to be dealing with somebody else's tunes as well with with Fliss's tunes it was great just to to approach it in a different way I think it's uh you know it it's it's more sort of song song based um album yes god this is gonna be fascinating so when did you get into the studio to start recording it um so it must have been um Pretty much straight after lockdown, I think. Um, was lot was the end of lockdown? I know this is bad, isn't it? Was that the end of twenty one? It was October. Say what it was. It was October last year. That's right. It's all it's all blurring into one now. It does, doesn't it? Well, really? with this one, we had we had the offer from uh, John Henderson. Um, he's now moved to uh, Portugal. Um. So we went there to record, um, uh, which was great uh, in Valencia. And um, who was and who was your producer on this one? Um, so it was a bit, it was a weird one. He had a studio there um, in the in the area that he lives in. Um, it's basically a sort of heavy metal studio, as far as I could see. Um, uh, so, yeah, so we went there and just used the in-house Ooh. producer. Obviously, Andy was with us. But it freed him up a little bit more to do um, the musical side of things rather than having to produce and play. Yes. So he could then do overdubs. So how long were you there for, for it during the um, session? Uh, we were probably there, uh, I think it was two weeks, actually. And it was pretty much nine to five. Um. Yeah, it was pretty much pretty much nine to five. Yeah, fantastic. So when does the album come out? Say again, sorry. When's the album coming out? Um, it's coming out November, I believe. Right, and you've got some live dates as well. That's right. Yeah, uh, in November. Um, let me just check when that is. Actually, I think that's why I went so black. Actually, I was looking at your website. Yeah, I think the lights have gone off. It's like you've got you've got four, haven't you? Edinburgh, Hebden Bridge, London, and Birmingham. That's right, yeah. And we're going to be bringing in sort of Terry Edwards, 
and a couple of local musicians to add the brass touches and strings. Um, so we're going to try and recreate the effects of the new album. Um, Fantastic. This is very exciting. Yeah, and, it should um, be interesting. It will. It will be yes. So with the live, what what's the kind of the live set, or do you plan that a bit later on? Um, so the way that we work at the moment, obviously Andy being away, so me, Fliss and Rob uh, meet up, um, and we uh, basically work out the set, get the set together, then we bring in Andy and the strings and the brass. Um, at a later date, uh, but by then, hopefully, at least we're tight. Yes, <laughs> everybody Does... else can work around us. Then, how many days do you give yourself before you play the first date? Is it a couple of days? What's that? Sorry, I was just saying, how long will you sort of rehearse as a band before your first live date? Um, so we, as I say, we're already rehearsing the set, we've got the set written down um Andy will come probably a week before or two weeks before um and I think we're going to get the brass involved soonish hopefully yes um so it's a little bit vague at the moment but we'll get there blimey do you sort of feel like you you're starting writing the next album after this yeah we're already we're already writing um new material so we have to keep it going really we're a bit behind schedule to be honest right so do you have an album plan next year as well um not as yet but um hopefully whenever andy's over we take advantage of that and do a bit of songwriting as well yeah that's amazing and just um if there was anything you could have whispered to your like 16 18 year old self starting out is there, is there any bit of advice you'd have said oh yes by the way i would definitely check this out or i'd focus on that um, I think it's just, um, I think, yeah, just having a realistic, uh, a realistic view of, of, you know, where music's going to take you and basically to enjoy it, you know. Yes. Um, not to think it's going to go anywhere or, you know, it's, it's going to be your life. I think it's more, it's a better idea just to have it as a, as a, uh, you know, full-time hobby. Um, yes, I think I think I think most of the people I interview yeah. now have got a day job, and then the band has to fit around it. But it keeps it in a weird way, sort of tighter. You know, it's like well, we can't mess around too much when we've got a rehearsal, and you know, when we've got yeah, some yeah, live it's, dates. It's, it's you know, it's it's you have to put the work in basically. Yes, this um, is true. And has your guitar playing changed much over the decades? Definitely, yeah, yeah. Obviously, the the big step up was joining the band, joining the Nightingales. Um, the band before Betty and the Id, I actually sort of only formed that band to dare myself to sing and play as a lead man, right? Just to see if I could do it. Um, so that was fun. So I think yeah. it's just about challenging yourself and just um, you know not getting too comfortable. Yes, absolutely. And does your dad still perform? Uh, he passed away, unfortunately, but. Um, he did, he sort of performed up until um, he started, well, until I was born, probably. So, but he always was into his music um, and he was still going to gigs, you know, right up to the end. He was a massive country and Western fan. Right. So, there you uh, go. Uh, he, he was still taking me to some strange country gigs 
<laughs> well, yes, my my parents were really into country, so especially my dad. So, yes, the work of Jim Reeves it's still ensconced in my brain, really. So, um, it can't be. <laughs> yeah. there, there were some other good ones, but I used to love, you know, Charlie Rich, Charlie Pride, Johnny yeah. Cash. You know, all those kind of artists, Tammy Wynette, and um. Well, yeah, they're the, they're the main ones available in charity shops now. Crystal Girl, you know, all those ones. So they, they do love them all. So um, there you go. But look, thank you ever so much for this, James. This has been amazing. And um, I really appreciate it. And if you want, I can always send you the link. And you can always, I don't know if you use it anywhere or you just want to listen to it. That'd be great. But yeah. thanks for also for your just um, giving me this time. This has been amazing. So yeah, um, Thanks for the questions. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. Oh, good. <laughs> there, was a, there was quite a lot of bands in the middle, which I think, God, I actually I had no idea about them, but I'm going to have to go and check them out now. Yeah, there's a lot of mid, mid-90s Birmingham bands you probably need to check out. I do need to check out, don't I? But is Pickle Eggs record? Pickle Eggs record? Pickled Egg record. Pickled Eggs. Is that is that a good place to have a look? Oh, they've they've got some great... I mean, it was a Leicester-based um, label. But they've got some fantastic things on it. It's not all Leicester bands or Birmingham bands. I think he had a Japanese band called Pop Off Tuesday. Right. Part of a psychedelic pop band. Um, he had some amazing bands. Thank um, God. Not, is he, is he still going? Records as well. I don't know if you've heard of him. Who was that? Kooky Records. That was the other label that we were on there from Northampton. Right. Thank God. I know. I know that it's. it was such a creative time in that. I don't know. It's still a creative time, but you know, there were so many labels and so many little venues around. Like, I suppose you would have played the Princess Charlotte endlessly, wouldn't you? Well, Birmingham had the we had the Jug of Ale in Mosley, which the was the pub where everybody would go to. Oh right. Um, and then obviously we had the main band in Birmingham at that time was Pram, right? In Leeds, but then all of the bands seemed to form around them because we could see that they'd got to London, they'd done a gig. They'd got in the Melody Maker. So it was kind of, uh, they were a big inspiration to a lot of Birmingham. Bands. Yes. Did you, was Barbarella's going when you were older? No, that was a bit after my time. I was more of a Burberry's man, the Click Club. Right. Burberry's, and they would have, um, they'd have Spaceman 3 on loop. Um, probably uh, Mercury Rev, that kind of thing, Primal <laughs> Scream. House of Love. It was a very sort of indie. It was the indie venue. It was like. the indie venue, especially, especially with Loop and um, Spaceman Three. My God, yeah, it was a great, great, great venue. Dave Travis was the uh, promoter, and he, I think he's still going, obviously. At the mm. Yeah, I'll have to check that out, Travis. Right. Well, look, thank you ever so much. I'm glad we got Zoom working as well. Sorry about the no, it was great. The, the, the slight um, moment where my computer had died earlier. <laughs> And that was me in conversation with James Smith, guitarist with the Nightingales. Do check out their new release, which has just come out on Tiny Global Productions. And the album is titled, he says, looking down at his notes again, this is going to be titled The Last Laugh, available from all good record shops and also probably online. And I think Bandcamp as well, so do check that out. Um, this is the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. Keep it positive. Keep it groovy. That's what we say. And all these interviews have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. It's true. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>